so good to be able to share together and be together as the family of God. Uh, this past week I was doing chapels at St. Mary's and we talked about uh, the importance of the family of God and the importance of being together and how the residents of St. Mary's during the worst restrictions of the lockdown, they say they miss that most of all, is being together with the family of God. They could listen to our services on the phone or watch services on the internet, but to be together with our brothers and sisters and to be the family of God is a special thing. So it's wonderful to have a full group today, and I know many people are taking in their service online. Just like to welcome everybody. But I'll be honest with you, this is a sermon that I have not, well, I've anticipated it. I'll say that. I haven't looked forward to sharing it with you today because it is, it is a difficult and controversial member of Jesus' closest friends, his inner circle. The 12 that he prayed all night about and that he picked and he chose and he appointed them. And they had such blessing and anointing on them. These are the twelve. All summer we've been talking about the apostles, the sent ones, the ambassadors of Jesus, the ones that for the last half of his earthly ministry he focused on and poured his life into. He mentored them. He taught them. He said, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. They were the closest people to God's son in the world. And yet one of them betrayed him. Handed him over to trial and execution. Turned his back on Jesus. Turned his back on the faith. He was there all along. You could not tell. The other members of the twelve, the eleven, were shocked. I put this graphic up once again because as we look at that graphic... We see the 12, but if you count it, if you have rudimentary math skills, you say there's not 12 people in that picture. There's only 11. Well, the reason for that is that old ancient uh, iconic uh, pictures of the church leaders, they often put the halos over them. It was an artistic way of representing the Spirit of God dwelling on somebody. That when the Spirit of God is in you, it's like the glory of God shines out of you. And you see halos around all of those members except the missing one where the number 12 is put, that was the place of Judas. Judas Iscariot. A man whose very name says betrayal, says traitor. If you're an American and you know a bit of American history, or you may not even know history, but you know that name, you know the name of Benedict Arnold. He was a man that during the Revolutionary War, he betrayed his country and gave the uh, plans and the defense plans of West Point Fort over to the British to allow them to attack it and take it, he sold out his nation. And so his name is a byword for being a traitor, Benedict Arnold. But to the people of faith, the family of God, there's nobody like Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus face to face. I call today's message, The Traitor Within. Because Judas was part of the inside group, those closest to Jesus. Now, the lessons of Judas' life basically are going to be lessons from the negative. Rather than seeing Judas as in any way a positive example for you and I today, we can still learn much from him by what he did and the results of that. 
but they're lessons from the negative for us. And yet they're in Scripture. They're important to us. Struggling with this message all week, I struggle to understand how he could do it. How he could do it. The question of why he did it, that's a separate question. But just as a human, how could you do it to somebody who loved you so much, who cared for you and took care of you and provided for you and taught you and was your best friend? And yet you selfishly put yourself ahead of them. But if we're honest, there's a little bit of Judas in everyone. He is there and just as we've talked all week, or all summer rather, about John MacArthur's book, The Twelve Ordinary Men, for that's what these men were, with all their strengths and equally with all their weaknesses, they were ordinary, uneducated men, hardworking men, just plain people. And Judas as well, as just an ordinary person, could do this. What would be beyond any of us? The traitor within. First, let's look at the fact that why Judas did it is because it was prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed. The 30 pieces of silver that we see in the account of Judas' betrayal, do you realize that is a prophetic number? That that amount of commerce, not a great number? People have tried to do the math. They say, why did Judas sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver it may sound like a lot, but it's not. At most in their currency, do you realize it would only be between three, four hundred dollars to hand Jesus over to the cross? There has to be more to it. Well, the fact is, friends, that again and again, whenever Jesus does something in regard to Judas, he said this is to be done in fulfillment of God's word. The reality is God prophesied, God said, the Word of God, the Old Testament says this is going to come to pass and nothing happens that thwarts the will of God. God said that Jesus was going to be betrayed by one of those closest to Him. In fact, it was going to be very much like Jesus' earthly ancestor, King David himself. Remember, Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, descended from David on both sides of his family. He is the son of David. He is the coming Messiah, the Davidic king. God promised King David the throne and scepter would never pass from his family. And this was fulfilled in Jesus. And many things in David's life point ahead to Jesus including the fact that David was betrayed. Jesus himself points out that Psalm 41 verse 9 is a prophecy concerning himself. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. David was betrayed by friends, by confidants, by generals, and worst of all, by his own family members by those he loved, his own son. David was betrayed and Jesus said the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy from Psalm 41 is in himself and the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. More pointed is the prophecy we find in Zechariah chapter 11. This is a fascinating chapter. In this chapter, God tells the prophet Zechariah to stand in his place as the shepherd of Israel. 
He says, you are to be the good shepherd and show the people what a good shepherd can do and what love they have for you. Because Israel at that time had many bad and ungodly leaders, the bad shepherds. So Zechariah does it. He goes before the people and acts as their shepherd. But the people reject him. First, they want to insult him in the chapter and they say, we will pay you, but only slaves wages. And they pay him earlier in chapter 11, they pay him 30 pieces of silver. Where does that number come from? The number comes from the book of Exodus. 30 pieces of silver is the symbol of a slave. If you accidentally, in the Old Testament, if you accidentally cause an injury or death of another person's servant, you're fined 30 pieces of silver. That's all the life of a slave was counted for. And not only do they pay Zechariah 30 pieces of silver, but they use that same insulting number to say that's all you're worth when God tells him, don't contend with the people anymore. Your ministry's done. Break your shepherd's staff and hand the flock over to be slaughtered. It was judgment time. We read in Zechariah 11, beginning in verse 12, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. That was a purposeful insult to the prophet. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they have priced me. The people said, not only do they not value the prophet, but they don't value God himself, whose prophet Zechariah was God's representative. God said, oh, the lordly handsome price. They give me 30 pieces of silver. So he says, throw it away, throw it to the potter. So I took the 30 pieces and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now you combine this with a passage from Jeremiah, which is alluded to in the New Testament. And this tells you what Judas will do. He will take a paltry sum, a slave wage to betray Jesus. And later that sum will be thrown into the temple and will be given over to the potter to buy a potter's field, which was the common name for where the homeless people were buried. You see, this is all prophesied. It all comes to pass in one of the twelve, Jesus' closest friends. Well, let's come to Judas himself. Judas. The call of Judas. Now, Judas, his name, Judas Iscariot, let's look at that very briefly, two parts. First, his name Judas. This is not a particular name different than any other names. This is a very common name. This is a transliteration. Judas is the transliteration of his name from the Greek. The Greek version of the common name Judah. His name was Judah. If you had been in Judea where he came from, you would have called him Yehuda. But the Greek New Testament gave the Greek version of his name, which is Judas. Judas had an S on it, a Greek ending. He had the same name as Jesus' brother, who we record in Scripture as Jude or Judah. This was the same name. Judas isn't a different name. It's a common name. It's a godly name. We know he was Judah, son of Simon. His father is mentioned a number of times. And his surname is given as Iscariot. 
Now that's where the confusion comes in. Iscariot set him apart from another one of the twelve who was known by a number of names, including uh, Judas, son of or brother of James, to tell him apart from that Judas, he was called Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. He's always known as the betrayer and he's always listed last in the apostolic lists. But Iscariot, people say, what does that mean? Very likely, it's where he was from. Ish Kerioth. It means man of Kerioth. And on the screen, you see a basic map of the Holy Land. There is the Sea of Galilee in the north, the Dead Sea in the south. The big red center spot is Jerusalem. And the village in Judea, the Judea Highlands, south of Jerusalem, Kerioth, is the hometown of this man. We know that it's not a name, as some have said, it means liar, because his dad's name is given as Simon Iscariot. That's probably not a nice family name. They're not known as the liar family. That would have been a giveaway. Who was the betrayer in the bunch? The liar family. Iscariot didn't mean assassin. Some people do verbal gymnastics to try to say it's from the word Sicari, which means dagger, that he was a terrorist, a a zealot. Well, one of the disciples was a zealot, Simon the Zealot. That's a different name than this. Very, very likely he's a Judean from Kerioth. Now that's important. And we see it mentioned, his hometown and why it's important that he's a Judean. You realize he's likely the only Judean among the 12. All of the other 11 of them were Galilean men who were looked down on by the religious leaders of Judea. And that's important. The passage that I'm going to read today of his call is a common one found in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and following, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to himself those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Judas is never mentioned apart from the fact that he is the one who betrayed Jesus. And that's his call. The only Judean among the group. And so think about that. James, John, Peter, Andrew, Philip, all of them knew each other, their hometowns, their families. You can't hide from one another. A small town knows who you really are. On Sunday morning, you can dress up and look pretty good and go to church. But the small town knows you the rest of the week. How you shop, how you do business. What stores you frequent? The Bottle Depot knows what bottles you turn in, if you know what I mean. (laughs) We know everything about each other. In hot weather, our windows are open. They can hear if you're getting along well with your family or not. It's a small town. But not Judas. Judas was from far away. Kerioth, a town none of them knew. He was a Judean. So naturally, he was set apart. They assumed he was good-hearted like the rest of them, but they didn't know. 
And that allowed him to be one thing on the outside and another on the inside. A hypocrite. We turn next to look at the hypocrisy of Judah. He was different on the inside. He was not what he seemed. Now you see some masks. These are in a museum. These are ancient uh, masks from the Greek theater. That's where we get our word hypocrite. Hippocrates is the Greek word for actor, one who wears a mask. They didn't put on makeup like modern actors. They wore masks that communicated who that character was and what their emotion was. The mouths on those masks were large because the actors had to emote loudly through the mask. A hypocrite's a person who says one thing but lives another. There's no integrity. The outside and the inside are not the same. They wear a mask. They're false. And that's a description of Judas. Though we don't hear him speak until late in ministry of Jesus, and we see that only in the Gospel of John, imagine he is there at all of the major events. And he blends in. He seems just like the rest of the twelve. But Jesus was never fooled by it. Jesus knew Judas' heart when he chose him. He knew the prophecies and he knew the one who would fulfill them. Judas did not do this under compulsion. The sovereignty of God is greater than man's free will, but our will is still free. We make our decisions and we pay the price, good or bad, for them. And yet, Judas was chosen. John chapter 6, verse, beginning in verse 63. This is an important passage in John 6 because Jesus' teaching late in His ministry was getting very spiritual and the people who enjoyed the miracles and the healings and the loaves and the fishes, the hard spiritual teaching was too much for them. They took His spiritual teaching of eat my flesh and drink my blood, that spiritual symbol, as a grotesque physical reality and the people rejected Jesus. And most of the disciples turned their back and walked away But Judas didn't. He stayed there. Jesus telling the crowd that he was speaking spiritually and not physically, he says in John chapter 6, beginning in uh, verse 63, Jesus says, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. See, that was Judas's problem. Though he looked like a believer and follower on the outside, his heart, he never embraced who Jesus was, who he claimed to be as the Son of God. He may have followed him as a miracle worker, as a potential religious revolutionary or a political deliverer, but he did not love him as his Savior. Jesus knew that Judas and others in the crowd who deserted him, the Judas who stayed, was not a believer. A little further down in the passage, in verse 68, everybody's turned away, but Simon, thinking he's speaking on behalf of all of the twelve, Simon Peter answered him, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go You have the words of eternal life. We believe, see, 
counts Judas in that group. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve would later betray him. Jesus knew that hypocrisy was at the heart of who Judas was. Well, you can only keep up the charade for so long and eventually the mask slips. It often does it in times of stress. Think about your own life because we all wear masks of one form or another. But eventually when it's stressful, you'll let it slip and people will learn who you really are. And we all fear that. We don't see Judas let his mask slip until all the way late in the very last days of Jesus' public ministry. That's recorded for us in a wonderful passage in John chapter 11. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Judas witnessed that. In John chapter 12, they throw a feast, a celebration that Lazarus is alive and restored to them. Jesus and Lazarus are the guests of honor and Judas is there. And that beautiful passage where Lazarus' sister Mary gives Jesus the great gift of the expensive perfume. A bottle of perfume that is worth one year's wages. Can you imagine? If their wage is 80000 a bottle of perfume worth $80,000, she pours it and anoints his feet. It says in John 12, verse 3, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, his first recorded words in Scripture, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he was trusted. So trusted, he kept the purse for the whole apostolic band. He was their treasurer. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So not only was he an unbeliever, but he worshipped money. He was greedy. And we know that the love of money is ultimately love of self. All money is, is something to provide pleasure or power or prestige or place for yourself. Judas was ultimately unbelieving and selfish and though he played the role of a faithful follower of Jesus, it was always just a mask. Led by the Holy Spirit and with time's passage, John, one of his fellow apostles and friends, wrote this about Judas. It came to light later that he had been a thief and greedy all along. That he was a man of unbelief, and greed, a hypocrite. Well, is this the final straw? What? Because right after this, we see Judas embark on a betrayal after this event with the money that was given away. What would have been a big score for Judas? He goes and begins to betray Jesus. 
People have, though, wondered about this. Judas seems to be greedy. His motivation seems to be money or something. But the 30 pieces of silver, that symbolic insulting price is so low, why would he go through with this plan? People have tried honestly over the years. There's no apostle. They have tried to rehabilitate the reputation of more than Judas. And this is not just a modern impulse. About 250 years after the time of Jesus, the group of heretics known as the Gnostics, a group of people who were loosely took the forms and language of Christianity, but filled it with a very unbiblical teaching and, 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 and occult cosmology. The Gnostics wrote a book called the Gospel of Judas. And in this Judas is the true friend of Jesus. That the other 11 ignorant Jews, they really just were stuck in the old in the past and Jesus knew Judas was the, 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 the real smart one. He was the Gnostic because Gnostic means knowledge. He was the one in the know and so Jesus gave his secret knowledge to Judas. From that early stage, people tried to understand Judas by giving him better motives than the Bible does. In fact, I have a brief summation of some theories of Judas' motivation. It's just a paragraph I want to read for you quickly. Why did Judas betray Jesus? And this is scholars over the years have come to about two major theories. The first is that Judas' betrayal may have been done out of genuine patriotic devotion. According to this view, Judas, as a Sicarius, remember his last name might mean a terrorist against Rome, as a Sicarius, he was ready to employ military strength to overthrow Rome. When he learned that Jesus was not going to lead a military revolt, he considered Jesus to be a fifth columnist or saboteur of some sort who was weakening the military strength of Israel by recruiting some of the nation's leaders and then refusing to employ them in a military rebellion. Although he had responded favorably to Jesus' teaching, he could not follow a teacher who was not prepared to lead a war. So he parted company with Jesus. And as a disillusioned disciple, he retaliated against Jesus by turning him over to the proper authorities. Not so much because he loved money, but because he loved his country and thought Jesus was delaying the movement that would free Palestine from the Romans. You see this theory in books, in novels, in television miniseries, Judas is always the disillusioned patriot. You know, it helps us humans understand somebody. It's selfishness and greed, which we all have in our hearts, you know, that's too much like Judas. So we make him kind of a, an un, you know, an, a misunderstood hero. The other interpretation is that Judas was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, but Judas was impatient. He acted as he did, therefore, in attempt to force Jesus to take the stand Judas anticipated. I think that one has maybe a little more credibility. Judas had seen Jesus get out of so many scrapes. He could walk right through a violent crowd and no one could touch him. Judas had been there to see Jesus feed the multitude, walk on water, turn water into wine, raise the dead... This was a man, if he was a king, a leader of the Messiah, he could do anything. So when Judas handed him over, perhaps some people think Judas was putting Jesus in a corner so he had to act like the Messiah that Judas wanted him to be, a political 
earthly king. Those are some theories. The Bible never says that. The Bible says he was an unbeliever. He was a devil. He was a thief. He was greedy. He was selfish. And this leads him to betray his best friend in the world. His master. The one who loves him so much. The betrayal of Judas. The 30 pieces of silver. The Gospel of Matthew says immediately following, immediately following the uh, anointing of Jesus at the party and Judas being scandalized that that money that he should have had access to went and he thought was wasted on Jesus. It says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. Oh no, this is a little later. That's the uh, Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to get there in just a few minutes, but I want to share earlier in that same chapter, chapter 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. This is right after the anointing and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out to him 30 silver coins. There it is. Jesus isn't worth anything more than a slave. 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Parallel passages say that opportunity was when Jesus wasn't surrounded by the multitude because the crowds still embraced him. This is just after the triumphal entry. Jesus was loved by the people And if they tried to arrest him in public, they knew there would be a riot. So Judas was going to give them a time, a quiet, secluded time that they could arrest Jesus quietly. This is premeditation. This isn't an accident. It wasn't a moment of passion. It's not manslaughter. It's not even second degree murder. This is first degree. Judas is playing a premeditated role in putting Jesus on trial and to death. He's handed him over. Jesus knows this is what's happening. Nobody else is aware except Judas, who's met with the chief priests, and Jesus, who knows that he's going to be betraying him. And so that brings us to that powerful episode in the upper room. The Passover meal is set. Jesus, as the host of the Passover meal, the places on either side of him are the preferred seats, the guests of honor. We know from the Passover that Peter comes in late. Uh, He arrives in the room and he gets the tail end of the table and he's upset. He's the leader. He should be up there with Jesus, but he's way down at the foot of the table. So when Jesus, as a servant, washes their feet, he begins at the head of the table, washing Judas's feet, and then finally gets to Peter who's upset. In all of this, Jesus treats Judas as a friend, honors him, gives him every chance to turn aside from the path he's on, to let go of the greed, the unbelief, the resentment that he harbors in his heart. But he never turns aside. He never does. We know Judas is at his hand because Jesus even feeds him from his bowl, which was an act 
of respect and love that Jesus shows Judas right to the end. In John chapter 13, we'll pick it up in verse 21. Jesus has just told them that one of them is going to betray him. They were afraid of outside forces and now Jesus says, no, the traitor is within, right here in our midst. So in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 21, after he shares that there's a betrayer, it says, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Judas played his role so well. He looked so good on the outside. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. That's how John refers to himself. Simon Peter, remember he's at the far end of the table at the foot. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, because remember they reclined at the table, left hand, left elbow on the table, on couches, and then eating with their right hands. John leans back against his Lord. It says one of them, ask him, it says, verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the, ta- no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Satan has found a collaborator in the midst, the chink in Jesus' armor, the sinner that he loved, whose motivations were right in line with Satan's. He wanted to do Jesus harm and so did Satan. So Satan somehow enters into Judas, whether he was directly possessed by him Or is just along for the ride to enjoy the show. Satan is there in their midst. But Judas leaves. And it's only after he leaves then that Jesus will turn his attention to sharing the first communion time and giving us the gift of remembrance of the body and the blood at that table at that time. Judas, meanwhile, has gone out into the darkness. Later, we're told that Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place that was so familiar to Judas. That's when they were in Jerusalem. They would overnight, they would camp in that olive grove. They would sleep while Jesus would often spend the night in prayer. So Judas leads the soldiers, Jesus' enemies, right to him. He knows where he's going to be. He tells them it's going to be dark, and while it's dark, I'll signal to you who Jesus is. How's he going to do this? He says, I'll kiss him. He's used to that. His followers, to show him our love and respect, will kiss our rabbi, our teacher. That'll be the symbol. Can you imagine the hard-heartedness, the cold-bloodedness to do this to Jesus, 
who showed you nothing but compassion and love, told you the truth all the years you'd spent with him. Verse 47 of Matthew 26, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. The other Gospels all say Jesus asks a question. The other Gospels all say Jesus says, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Only in Matthew do we see that Jesus answers his own question. It was a rhetorical question. Verse 50, Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Friend, do what you came for. And Jesus is handed over, put on trial, a mockery of a trial, rejected by the people and nailed to a cross for your sin and mine. Judas had played his role. He'd betrayed Jesus. He'd led the enemies right to him. But there's an old saying that the punishment of sin is built into it. If you indulge in addiction, gluttony, they all have a result. The punishment is built into them. If you betray your family, your spouse in adultery, the punishment is built in. We break up our families. We're wounded by our sins. Judas didn't realize that getting even with Jesus and rejecting Him and handing Him over whatever His motivations were, he didn't feel very good about it. In fact, he was tortured by it. He had condemned an innocent man to death. So Scripture records for us the death of Judas. A hopeless suicide. The death of Judas. There's two accounts that speak of the death of Judas. Matthew is the brief account. And later, Peter speaking in Acts chapter 1 goes into much gorier detail. But Matthew chapter 27 speaks of the regret and the remorse that Judas had when he learned that Jesus was condemned to death. That he wasn't going to rescue himself as he had helped so many others. Verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple. Zechariah chapter 11. He threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away. And hanged himself. Went away and hanged himself. Acts one eighteen tells us more detail that the priests, they said, we can't keep this money. We paid to have a man put to death. This is blood money. And so they bought, in Judas's place as proxies, they bought a potter's field, a graveyard in the Hinnom Valley for the lost souls rejected by society to be buried in an unmarked grave. The very place that Judas had gone in his remorse, in his regret. But all that was missing was repentance. 
Judas, who could have gone to Jesus at any point and confessed his sin and found forgiveness, never did. He took his regret with him to that grave and hung himself. Peter says later, the decaying and distended corpse fell from the place. And if you've seen the Hinnom Valley, it is a rocky, jagged valley. The only trees grow along the top edge and a body falling from that would, as Peter says, burst asunder and his bowels poured out. An awful end of an awful path that he traveled. What lessons can we draw from this lost soul? The traitor within, the betrayer, the lessons of Judas. He wants to teach you some lessons today. We'll close by briefly looking at four lessons. The first is look at his life. What a wasted opportunity. The feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, all the miracles, but all of those nights around the campfire where you could ask the Son of God anything. You could go with Him with any problem. You could learn any truth from Him. Because He was there for you as your teacher and master and guide. What an opportunity. Thrown away. Thrown away. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 Jesus gave everyone that opportunity. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, learn from Judas. We all have that opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't waste the opportunity. If you hear God calling you, if you recognize that you're a sinner in need of saving, go to the Savior. Don't waste it. But Judas did. In the place of love of God, he loved himself. And to take care of himself, he loved money. Judas teaches us the dangerous love of money. Scripture is not joking. The familiar passage, 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money, not money, but the love of money, making it a God, is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Judas is a prime example of that. Don't put self first. The love of money ends in disaster. As we saw throughout, Jesus knew that all along Judas played the part on the outside, but on the inside, he never embraced Jesus by faith. He never, he knew of him, he was around him, he was acquainted with him, but he didn't know him at the heart level. He didn't love him as his Savior. And you're saved by faith, but you're lost in unbelief. If you don't believe Jesus, you've already made your choice. As Jesus says, following the familiar passage of John 3.16, Jesus continues, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Judas rejected Jesus as his Savior. He may have wanted him as an earthly king. He may have wanted him as a religious symbol that he could get money from. 
We still see that today. But no, he didn't believe in him as the only Son of God and Savior. He rejected him. Finally, Judas encourages me, he encourages you to examine your hearts. Jesus told a parable. It's not on the screen. He told the parable of the the wheat field full of weeds. Oh, as farmers, you hate to go by, especially that field by the road. If something happened with the sprayer, something goes wrong and the field is full of weeds. It's always the road everybody, uh, uh, the field everybody sees from the main road. It just is one of those laws of life. And it puts you to shame. You feel so bad. Jesus said that's what the church is like. The church is like a wheat field full of weeds. People look at the weeds. People in the church that think they belong there, they they go to church like everybody else. But there's no faith. They don't believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, let them grow. Don't pull them out. That's not your job. Jesus says at the end of days, at the judgment seat, the church is going to be harvested like a wheat field. And then the tares, the weeds will be separated out and cast aside for burning. I've always read that. And I say, I'm going to examine my heart to make sure there is faith there. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Paul's saying, examine your heart. Is it Jesus' home? Does He live there? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in. He'll take up residence. That's through faith in Him and Him alone as our Savior. Examine your hearts. Friends, this has not been an easy journey and I... As we walk alongside Judas, the betrayer, and I appreciate you taking it with me today, I just want to encourage you, the lessons may come from the negative example of Judas, but they are important lessons. Let's take them to heart. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I cannot imagine walking with Jesus for maybe two years every day seeing Him, the reality of who He was as the only begotten Son, perfect in love and grace, and yet having eyes so turned inward, selfish and unbelieving, to miss that opportunity to know Jesus and be saved by Him. And yet, Lord, many of us think if we just go to church once in a while, if we seem to be with the crowd that it'll work out okay. And we waste an opportunity to know you personally. The joy of having you in our hearts, dwelling within by your precious Holy Spirit and leading us and guiding us, speaking to us and bringing your word alive as we study your Bible. And then experiencing the love of Jesus which overflows from our lives into the lives of those around us to be a channel of Your blessing to a hurting world. Lord, this is the test of Your followers. They love with the love of Jesus. 
They've experienced the reality and they share it. Lord, help us not to be satisfied to drift along, to pretend to be one thing on the outside and to be the other thing within. Lord, may we be serious about our relationship with You. May it be the cornerstone, the center of who we are and the lives we live. Father, speak to us by Your Spirit and by Your Word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless and keep you today.